All right, today we are going to be looking at Genesis 37. For those of you who brought your Bible, please, please read along. And uh, what I want you to do is I want you to try to see, if you haven't been in any of these sermons before, and if you haven't watched them on YouTube, you're probably not going to know what is going on. But if you have been watching these, then uh, you may be able to see what is being pictured in the future. The book of Genesis is a book of foundations. It's laying the foundation of what God is going to do in redemptive history. And so he gives us pictures of the future that are coming. And they are all centered on Jesus Christ, all of them. But uh, if you read Genesis uh, 37, we're going to start at the 23rd verse. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up out and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know, do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to mourning to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him to Egypt, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Uh, if you, as I said, if you've been in these sermons and you have been following them, you know that the pictures in Genesis have a ton of symbolism which is pointing to their fulfillment in later redemptive history. Adam Clark, who is a great Methodist theologian, somebody I quote quite often, uh, he cautions strongly against exactly this approach. Here are his thoughts on this matter. He says, parallels and coincidences of this kind, noting some of these type of things that somebody came up with, um, parallels and coincidences of this kind should always be received cautiously. For where the Spirit of God has not marked a direct resemblance and obviously referred to it as such in some other part of his word, it is bold, if not dangerous, to say such and such things and persons are types of Christ. We have instances sufficiently numerous, legitimately attested, without having recourse to those which are of dubious import and precarious application. Now, in his comments, which uh, he gives during chapter 40 of Genesis, which I've already read, He's even stronger in his wording and his condemnation of searching out and looking for these type of pictures. 
But in this particular instance, he and I are going to have to disagree. And there's two reasons for it. The first is that he's dead, so I'm never going to change his mind. And secondly, his thoughts dismiss the very words of both Jesus and of the apostles, which state that these things testify to Jesus. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as on several other occasions, Paul uses such examples from the Old Testament and demonstrates exactly how they symbolically picture and point to Christ in his work. And then he says these words. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now having said this, I will agree with Adam Clark on a, a, a particular point, that pictures, patterns, and parallels cannot be pulled out of the wind. They must align with something that God later instructs us on, either implicitly or explicitly. And they must be directed properly to the plan of redemption, as the Bible reveals it. In other words, I do read on websites all the time, people that come up with these things, and they say, well, this is picturing this, and it has nothing to do with anything based in the Bible. It's just, you know, they take a word and they say, this could mean this, and therefore it means this. And you can get off on so many tangents in the Bible if you try to force pictures into what is being said. And that's just the way it is. You have to be very, very careful about how to interpret these pictures which point to Jesus Christ. But if they line up with God's plan of redemption and if they properly signify what happened to Christ, then the patterns are not only acceptable, but they actually explain the seemingly unnecessary nature of some of the things which are recorded in the Bible. They're not unnecessary. But they're integral words, ideas, and pictures which reveal to us the majesty of God's wisdom and the glory of the work of Jesus Christ. And today's patterns are going to be no different. So we're going to continue on the journey through Genesis with the story of Joseph as he is sold off to slavery in Egypt. Our text verse for today comes from the 38th Psalm. There it says, I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Now we have both Jacob and Joseph who are going to suffer greatly from the events of today's passage. And it's hard for most of us to relate to what occurred to them. But how much more the things that they picture in Christ. What he suffered was done for us willingly for people like you and me. Such is the love of God for his wayward creatures. So let us never forget what he went through to reconcile us back to himself. And so, may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Now, as I normally do, I got three thoughts for you today. The first one is the waterless pit. This is verse 23. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. This first verse of today's sermon is undoubtedly recorded for the purpose of showing us the coming abasement of the Lord of creation, our Lord and our Savior Jesus. Joseph's brothers hated that their father favored him and that he was set above them. The coat was a sign of that favor and his authority over them. They wanted him to feel the effects of its loss so that uh, when he was sent by his father to check up on, on them, they stripped him of his coat and the same idea is true with Jesus. He is the favored son of the father, and he was sent on a journey to his people, who are the people of Israel. And he was sent to be the shepherd over them. But when they saw him coming, they hated his authority, 
And so they eventually stripped him of that as well. Now the concept of Jesus' coat actually finds its fulfillment in two ways. One spiritually and one literally. In his earthly adornment, God prepared a human nature, a coat for his son in a way which no other person has ever possessed. He was filled with the spirit and he was adorned with the graces and gifts of that spirit. And when his brothers saw this, the Bible shows their jealousy of Jesus. But in a literal way, Christ was also stripped by those around him. First, he was taken to Herod after being with Pilate. He was taken to Herod. And Luke 23, 11 says that they arrayed him in a gorgeous robe. And he was later stripped of this. He also had his own personal tunic, which was an expensive and carefully made garment of which he was stripped. The account is recorded for us in the Gospels. We find it in John chapter 19. It says there, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, who, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be filled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now that comes from the 22nd Psalm. And it goes on and it says, therefore, the soldiers did these things. Verse 24, then they took him and cast him into a pit and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Here again, we see a picture of Jesus. Last week, we saw that Reuben is the one that kept the other brothers from killing him. Instead, he told him to throw him into a pit, hoping to rescue his brother from that pit. And we saw that the word pit is the Hebrew word bore, a word which is used symbolically throughout the Old Testament as the place where the dead go. Joseph is thrown into this pit, and so in both intent and in picture, he's symbolically slain by his brothers after having been stripped bare. And this is exactly fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He died, and his body was placed in the grave. His soul had departed. Moreover, in this verse, the state of the pit that Joseph is thrown into is described not once, but twice. In Hebrew, it says, Vehabor rek and bo maim. Now the pit was empty without water. It is described as both empty and without water when either could have sufficed. But this was again to show us coming pictures. The note that the pit was empty was to picture the unused grave that Jesus was laid in. Because it, in those times, they used to take people and put more than one person into a tomb. But this was specifically noted as empty to show that Jesus' tomb was unused. And this is found in Luke chapter 23. It says, then he, meaning uh, speaking about Jesus, then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had been laid before. That the pit was without water was to picture that Jesus' life was in fact gone from his body. Water being a picture of life in the Bible. One of the many verses to show us this would be the famous passage that we've gone to many, many times in other sermons of Jesus with the woman at the well, which is recorded in John chapter 4. Here he says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Joseph's ordeal, and I know it's tragic, it's been recorded for more than one reason. It shows us how the dreams that he actually had came about. 
It also shows us the sequence of events which would lead to the imprisonment of the people of Israel and eventually to their exodus in the Passover. And it shows how these events parallel the greater work of Jesus Christ. Not only do these things mirror what he will do, but the things that they lead to, such as the Passover, do exactly the same thing. The Passover again mirrors the cross of Christ. One story is building upon another and then yet another, and yet each one of them has hints of the coming life and of the coming ministry of Jesus Christ. It is the most marvelous wisdom that is displayed in each one of these stories as they build on each other. No wonder, there is absolutely no wonder that Jesus could claim that the words of Moses testified to him. Everything written in the past was given in anticipation of his coming and of his work. When speaking to the leaders of Israel, Jesus said these words to them, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you did not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Our second thought today, selling off the favored son. Verse 25, and they sat down to eat a meal. Amazingly, this short little sentence right here, which is only a part of verse 25, shows us a parallel to the time of Jesus' cross. Joseph was cast into a pit, which is a picture and type of Jesus' death. And while there, the brothers sat down to a meal. Likewise, when Jesus was crucified and buried, the leaders of Israel sat down to their own meal. In John 18, we read these words. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning, but they did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. And again, we read this in John chapter 19. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the new garden, a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. So they laid Jesus, there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Just as Joseph's brothers coldly sat outside and ate a meal while their brother was in the pit, the same is true with Israel's leaders, they feasted and they celebrated the Passover while Jesus lay in the tomb. And the funny thing about that is that Jesus is called the Passover lamb. Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. The meal that they were eating only pointed to the work of Jesus Christ. And here they are having this meal thinking they've done away with Jesus Christ. If you see almost the irony of what's going on with the coldness of the human heart as we turn away from who Jesus is and what God is trying to tell us in these wonderful, beautiful passages. Verse 25 continues, Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Now, the plain sense of this verse needs very little explanation. They're eating a meal, and along come a bunch of Ishmaelites from Gilead. And it will tell us later in the same verse that they're Camels are bearing spices that they're going to take to Egypt to sell. But one must ask, why has God included all the detail? Couldn't he have skipped some of this? Well, we need to go back and we need to look at what the names mean. Ishmael means God hears. Gilead means the perpetual fountain. Joseph is in the pit. He's certainly down there praying for God's assistance. God hears him and he sends his deliverance. A group traveling from Gilead, the perpetual fountain. In the same way, the Psalms prophetically speak of the prayers of the Lord from the pit. 
In the 16th Psalm, it says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. And then at the end of the Psalm, we read this resounding note of victory. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Remember, Sheol and the pit are used synonymously. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Verse 25 continues. With their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. Now, like I said, the Bible could have just given us these generalities. For example, these guys had a bunch of camels that were full of goods. Instead, it lists the goods and it says that they are going to Egypt. Egypt means double straits or double distress. God chose to include that there were spices, balm, and myrrh specifically to give us a picture of Christ's death. Joseph is in the pit, which is symbolic of death. Jesus is in the tomb, dead. In order to meet the custom of the Jews, it says this in Luke chapter 23, which is speaking of the women who were with Jesus at the cross. It says, then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And then in John 19, we learned that these burial spices included myrrh and aloes. Thus, we see the parallel brought right clearly into focus once again. God is using every single thing in these accounts to wake us up to what he has done and what he will do through his precious son, Jesus. Verse 26, so Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Now, Judah's the one that realizes that there is an alternative to leaving Joseph in the pit, something which would be tantamount to killing him. Instead, they could profit off the sale of him. And so he devises this plan. Verse 27, come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh. And the brothers listened. Judah proposes to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. Selling Joseph involves the supposition that he is in fact alive. They threw him into the pit and they went to eat. To them, he was as good as dead, but now they acknowledge that he's alive. And this is important for us to understand what's going on here. He says he is our brother and our flesh. And from this note, it says that his brothers listened. In other words, they have agreed to the deed. Verse 28, then Midianite traders passed by. Suddenly, and this is hugely curious, an entirely different group of people are brought into the story. The Ishmaelites are noted, and now almost completely ignoring that for a moment, it says that Midianite traders passed by. Commentators almost universally lump these guys together. They say, oh, it's just Ishmaelites. But Midian was a son of Abraham through his concubine Keturah. Ishmael was a son of his concubine Hagar. They are an entirely different group of people. They very well may have been traveling together, but God once again chooses to single them out by name. And the name Midian means place of judgment. The name place of judgment bears directly on what is about to happen in the same verse, and it points to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 28 continues. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit. Guess what? The Hebrew does not say, so the brothers pulled Joseph up. Rather, the words, so the brothers, are inserted by the translators for what they believe is clarity. I want to read you Young's literal translation of this exact same verse. It says, and Midianite merchantmen pass by and they draw out and bring up Joseph out of the pit and sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 silverlings and they bring Joseph into Egypt. 
Reading it this way, as the Hebrew actually reads, it says that the Midianites brought him out of the pit. And talking to my friend Sergio, the word that they use for raised there or lifted out is actually the word raised, if you're starting to see a parallel there. And it goes on and it says that uh, uh, then they sold him to the, Midi the Ishmaelites. And this is exactly what the Jewish scholar Perk Eliezer believes. The brothers sold him to the Midianites and then the Midianites sold him to the Ishmaelites. There's no confusion in the word at all. The brothers sold him and they did not even want to see him again. They simply pointed over to the pit and they let the Midianites get him out. The Midianites then turned and made a quick buck off of reselling him again. Why though? Why did God choose this particular wording? The reason is Jesus. He was in the tomb, which is the place of judgment, which is exactly what Midian means. The pit is the place where our sin was placed on him, and then he was judged faithful without his own sin. God raised him from the grave, thus signifying that the divine judgment on sin was paid in full. And this is exactingly explained in the book of Romans chapter 5 by Paul. Here's what Paul says. For the judgment which came from one offense, meaning Adam's offense, resulted in condemnation. That means that all human beings are condemned in Adam. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense, Adam, death reigned through the one, how much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. God did hear Ishmael. That's why the Ishmaelites are mentioned. He heard from the perpetual fountain. That's why where they are coming from is mentioned, Gilead. And the perpetual fountain being a symbol of his throne. He was restored to life. His body was brought back to life by God and his body had been covered in spices and myrrh at the place of judgment, Midian. This is why all of these names are given. Each word has been selected by God to show us what is coming in the work of Jesus. And I got to tell you what, these words are being used consistently in every single one of these sermons. Gideon means place of judgment every time that we use it. I'm sorry, uh, Gilead. Gilead means the uh, perpetual fountain. I got something backwards there. Gilead will always mean the perpetual fountain, and it will always symbolize the throne of God in these pictures. The same thing with Joseph, for example. His name, he shall add. It will mean the same thing time and time again, that Gentiles are being added into the fold of God's grace. Word after word is always used consistently, and that's why what Adam Clark said at the beginning of this sermon is true to some extent. We need to be careful about pictures, and we need to be careful about patterns and parallels. But when they point to the plan of redemption and they're used consistently, they are used that way to show us the work of Jesus. Verse 28 continues, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Now I want to tell you something. Of all of the pictures of the coming work of Jesus Christ, this one right here is most commonly associated with it. If you read a commentary, they will say that this was the money that was paid to Judas. Everybody agrees on that. It is, they'll say that the money paid to Judas was by the leaders of Israel in order to do away with Jesus. All commentators say that. I haven't seen any commentator that says differently. And I want to tell you something. I, I completely disagree. Joseph has already been in the pit. And Joseph is now brought out of the pit. What Joseph did was, 
or I'm sorry, what Judas did was prior to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, not after. This is picturing something entirely different, something that comes after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's found in Matthew chapter 28. Here's what it says there. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Remember, Judah is the one that suggested it, and Judah is where the word Jews come from. That's what this is pointing to. It's not pointing to the blood money of Judas at all. It's pointing to the blood money paid to the leaders of the Jews. Money was exchanged to keep the people quiet and to hide a crime. And this is what happens in both instances. Joseph was sold off by his brothers after being drawn out of the pit, and Joseph was sold off by the leaders of Israel after he rose from the grave. In both cases... The act results in movement from Israel to the Gentiles. And in both cases, the movement will eventually return back to the Jewish people. Joseph is going to be reconciled to his brothers after he rules in Egypt and during seven years of famine. And Jesus is going to be reconciled to his people after the time of the Gentiles and during the seven years of tribulation, which is exactly what we're going through in the book of Revelation Bible study right now. Foreigners carried off Joseph to their land, and the Gentiles have carried the gospel message of Jesus Christ into all the world. Verse 28 continues, and they took Joseph to Egypt. The price is paid, the money is, has exchanged hands, and the Ishmaelites take charge of Joseph. He's taken to Egypt, which is the place of double distress. And this is a picture of the message of Jesus going from the Jews to the Gentiles. The Jews had the law. The Gentiles had nothing. They are in double distress. But in a land of no hope, Joseph is going to bring prosperity and he's going to bring them peace. And in the place of no hope for the Gentile people of the world, Jesus will do the same. Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says there that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I got to tell you what, it is all about Jesus. All of it. And as I said, Joseph's name means he shall add. And that's exactly what's happening now. Joseph is leaving the land of Israel and his brothers, and he's going into a Gentile-controlled part of the world. And that's what Jesus did. He was rejected by his brothers, and he was sent into a Gentile world to seek and save those who are lost. It is all about Jesus. There is not one word that we have seen so far that hasn't pointed to something which is literally fulfilled in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the center and focus of the Bible. The Bible is God's plan of redemption. It's his love letter to his people. It's what he expects of us. It's what he hopes for us. It's his guidance for us. Now, I'm not opposed to watching TV. My wife will tell you I watch TV all the time. But I'm opposed to watching TV if you're not going to also read your Bible. And if you're going to have iPods and telephones and all of these things, that's fine. But you ought to have an app on there for your Bible as well. So that once in a while you pick it out and you say, I just want to know what the Lord has in the Psalms for me today. Or maybe I'll read a book that I've never read that will take me 18 minutes to read. I'm going to read the book of Ruth today. Four chapters long. It will take us weeks to get through the book of Ruth. 
Ruth with all of the symbolism about Jesus Christ in that book. And most people have never read it even one time. Now, I'm not trying to condemn people here. I'm trying to motivate you. I'm trying to get you to understand that everything is about Jesus. We cannot know God. It is impossible to know God apart from Jesus Christ. And we cannot know Jesus Christ without knowing this book. We can't do it. So make that connection in your mind and determine always to read this book and to keep your nose in it and to think on Jesus and to talk to him and allow him to guide you as you read this book and you discover the very heart of God for each one of you. Anyway, we'll go on to our third and final thought today, which is Jacob's anguish. Verse 29, then Reuben returned to the pit and indeed Joseph was not in the pit and he tore his clothes. Apparently, Reuben went out pasturing his flocks and what he did, he went in a roundabout manner in order to come back to the pit and deliver Joseph out of it without his brother seeing him. But he got there too late. He was already sold. Reuben means, this is the meaning of the name Reuben. See, a son. Verse 30, and he returned to his brothers and said, the lad is no more and I, where shall I go? Reuben had not consented to the sale, nor did he know of it. But when he found that his brother was gone, he tore his clothes, which is a sign of intense grief. And he asked, where shall I go? Or as God's words, God's word translates it, he says, what shall I do now? This is a beautiful picture of the people of Israel who had gathered, believe it or not, in Acts chapter 2. Peter had explained to all of the people of Israel at the Feast of Pentecost what had happened, how Christ had died and now how the tomb was empty and how the Lord was risen. And in verse 37, it says these words. Now when they heard this, meaning the people of Israel, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Exactly the words that Reuben just said. Those Jews whose hearts were softened to the plight of their brother Jesus responded just as Reuben did. For those who repented, they were given the right to be called children of God. Hence the name Reuben, see a son. The name of Reuben here finds its fulfillment in those Jews. Verse 31, so they took uh, Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. But, but there are those who hid the truth of the message of Jesus and who refused to acknowledge their deed. Just as the brothers of Joseph plotted to hide what they had done from their father, the people of Israel did the same thing. Regardless of whether they killed their brother or not, the blood guilt remained. They sold him off as a slave, thus condemning him. What this is showing us is a time of rejection of Christ for the Jewish people. The Hebrew here for a kid of the goats is a very specific Hebrew term. It's Seir Izim. It's used in Leviticus chapter 16 for the Day of Atonement rituals. On that day, two goats were selected. And the same term, Seir Izim, is used for those goats. One of them was made a sacrifice for the sins of the people, and one was used as what is called a scapegoat. The scapegoat had the sins of the people confessed over it, and then it was released alive into the wilderness to carry away the sins of the people. It's a process known as expiation. This goat, killed by the brothers, is the scapegoat for their deeds. But instead of letting it go, they killed it to cover what they did, using its blood as a trick against their father. And this is a sad after-the-fact note that they had brought on themselves disaster, which is reflected, believe it or not, in Matthew chapter 27, 
when the Jewish people said these words. And all the people answered and said, speaking to Pilate, his blood, meaning Jesus, be on us and on our children. Instead of accepting their king and rejecting Barabbas, they called for Barabbas and accepted the blood guilt of Christ. Verse 32, then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Now, what is about as cowardly as it could be, they sent the tunic to their father by a messenger. They didn't even have the intestinal fortitude to take it themselves so that they could be there to help their father through the grief. But their actions could not conceal their guilt any more than the leaders of Israel could conceal theirs. Joseph's brothers will admit as much when they go down to Egypt looking for food. They're going to admit their guilt in the presence of their brother, not knowing it's him. And the leaders of Israel also knew it when they tried to force the apostles to be quiet about Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, we read these words. And when they had brought them, meaning the apostles, into the Sanhedrin, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you to not teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us, which is exactly what they had asked for and which is exactly pictured by that goat. Our actions cannot be hidden from, uh, they can be hidden from others' eyes, but they cannot be hidden from our own consciences and they cannot be hidden from God. The man's blood was on them. And I got to tell you what, it's the same thing with us. I think of this almost daily. When I go to bed at night and I think, you know, I've done something or thought something that probably wasn't right. And I think, you know, I, I don't want to confess this to God. And guess what? God already knows. And every single thing that we do, he's already aware of. What we need to do is we need to get it out of us in his presence so that we have it off of our consciences as well. There's no hiding these things from God. And that's what they have been trying to do here. These leaders of Israel. They're saying, you're trying to put his blood on us when they already asked for his blood. And we need to get our blood, whatever it is, small or large, get it off of ourselves, give it to the Lord, confess it, and it will be under the blood of Jesus Christ. That's just the way that it works in our lives. And when we carry these things around and we try to hide them from God, we're only wearing down our own consciences because we know, we know that he knows. And I got to tell you, there's one other thing about our sin. We don't always remember our sin. Sometimes we put it away so deeply that we've forgotten all about it, but God hasn't. And until that sin is taken care of by the blood of Jesus Christ, it remains forever. So I, I'm sure that the people here have called on Jesus. If they haven't, if anybody here has never called on Jesus, we're going to talk about that in a little while. But only by the blood of Jesus Christ and what he did can our sins be taken away. And that's what that scapegoat is saying. We have the atoning goat and we have the scapegoat. He is the one that takes these things away from us. Verse 33, and he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. My son's tunic. The ruse worked for the sons of Israel and the ruse worked for the leaders of Israel when they went and paid that money. Having rejected their Lord, they went about seeking their own righteousness in a new way. They codified Jewish law through two documents. They're called the Gemara, and the Mishnah, which together form what is called the Talmud. That is the code of Jewish living even to this day. Jacob, whose name means deceiver, was once again deceived. And Israel likewise has faced the deception concerning Jesus for 2,000 years. The scapegoat's blood has remained and it can only be removed when one turns to the Lord and acknowledges 
their guilt before him. In his anguish, Joseph cries out these words, Tarof Toraf, torn, torn. To Jacob, there seems no hope. And to Israel, it seems the same. But God is in control of everything. And his heart and his affections for his people will always bring about a good end. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. So it will be for Jacob, and so it will be for Israel, all in God's good timing. I got to tell you what, that brings me to one thought right now before I go on, is that when we talk about God's good timing, and we have people that we desperately love that don't know Jesus, we just keep on praying. Because he has these things figured out already. And all we can do is just submit our prayers and put it in his hands. There are all kinds of people in my life that I pray for night after night after night, a whole list, and it gets longer by the day. And I got it almost in a poem so that I can remember each one of these people. Lord, let me pray this person and this person and this person. And he will resolve these things in his good timing. I don't know who he is going to call and who he isn't going to call or who is going to make the voluntary choice of saying, Jesus, I want you to forgive me. But just keep praying. It's all in his good timing. Israel is going to find that out. They're going to go through all kinds of trouble in the next few years. They're going to enter the tribulation period. But they as a nation will call on Jesus and he is going to return to them. The Bible teaches this and this is what will happen. The same can happen with any person that you keep in prayer as well. Verse 34, then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. Tearing one's clothes is a sign of mourning. I already said that with Reuben, and here in the same chapter, Jacob tears his clothes as well. And you see it all the way throughout the Bible, people tearing their clothes in anguish. And I thought to myself, maybe this is why there are so many Jewish people that are in the sewing industry, is because there's so many torn garments. I got to tell you what, Levi Strauss, baby, he sewed a lot of blue jeans, but it's a sign of mourning. Anyway, this sign of mourning would be comparable to us wearing a, a black uh, band on our arm or maybe rubbing ashes on our forehead. He demonstrates his grief openly, and then he puts on what is called sackcloth. This is the very first time in the Bible that the word sackcloth is mentioned. It's like tearing one's clothes. It's a sign of mourning. But instead of regular clothes, what they do is they'd simply put on this coarse material, which is made of hair, and it was used for sacks. It's basically the same word that we use for sack nowadays. Now, I want you to remember, because these sackcloth are made of hair, and hair in the Bible denotes an awareness or a consciousness. Jacob is conscious of the fallen state of the world and the death of his son because of the sin in the world. So you see the symbolism that's going on even with this act by the father. In this state, it says that he mourned for his son many days. He was a broken man and he's now living a shattered existence. And I will tell you that this is exactly reflected, speaking of Israel, later in the Bible. In the book of Hosea 3, Chapter 3, it says these words, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. The name Jacob is not going to be mentioned again until chapter 42. So here we have all of these chapters without Jacob not even being mentioned. And that only happens when he sends his sons down to Egypt to buy grain. And isn't this a perfect picture of Israel for the past 2,000 years, just as I read you from Hosea? 
They've been a side note in history, living out mournful years of existence and awaiting their destined meeting with Messiah, which is promised right there in the Bible. The patterns are rich and these patterns are extravagant. The parallels are way too many to dismiss and Israel's continuance is a testimony to God's faithfulness to preserve them despite their own actions of the past. Verse 35, and all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. One of the things that irks me most, and I said this in a previous sermon, and I'm going to say it in one more sermon in the weeks ahead. It is almost unanimous among scholars is to say that all of his sons and all of his daughters does not literally mean daughters, even though the word is in the plural. Jacob could have had 20 daughters. He could have had 50 daughters, and it would not harm the Bible's narrative one iota. Only Dinah is mentioned by name, and so they come to the conclusion that only Dinah is his, da Dinah is his only daughter. And that's just a bad conclusion. The reason why Dinah was mentioned was because of her relevance to the pictures that God was making for our understanding of the work of Jesus. Daughters are only mentioned in cases like this. In other instances, they're completely left out of the biblical record. And that's not because they're unimportant, but because the family line travels through the mail. So that has nothing to do with what people like to say, insert their thoughts about, you know, the Bible being a chauvinistic book or not. It has nothing to do with that. It's just God is working out a plan of redemption and he's doing it in a methodical and a distinct way. And when it says daughters for Jacob, he has daughters. So if your commentary says something like this, just put a big fat X through that commentary, all right? Jacob had many daughters. There's no doubt about it. And we're going to see that again a third time later. And they, these daughters, just like the sons, were unable to comfort Jacob in his sadness. Instead, instead Jacob says that he is going to go down to Sheol, which is the place of the dead, mourning for his son. And I want to explain to you what the word Sheol is, because we're going to see this word about 7,000 times in the Old Testament. Sheol comes from a word, Sha'al. It means to demand. It is the place which eventually and inevitably demands the souls of every person, or the soul, singular, of every person. Jacob knows that someday he is going to be demanded of or required in Sheol. And when he arrives, his hope is to be reunited with his beloved son, Joseph, but until then, he says that his mourning is going to continue. Verse 36. Now Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. Once again, and you got to pay attention to this because I know what your Bible says. I don't even need to look at it to know what your Bible says. It does not reflect what the Hebrew says at all. It does not say Midianites as what I just read. Okay? It doesn't say that. Instead, it says Midianites. Midan is a brother of Midianite, of Midian. Both are sons of Abraham by his concubine Keturah. So I want you to know that the Hebrew says Midianites, not Midianites. Translators and commentators alike simply use the ex excuse that this is a scribal error, or they use it as another name for the same people, and so on. But the plain sense of it is that the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, and the Medanites were all involved in the purchase, sale, and resale of Joseph. Where Midian means place of judgment, Midan simply means judgment. This isn't arbitrary, and it is not a mistake. Jesus was brought out of the place of judgment where it, when he was brought out of the tomb. Now, 
through that judgment, he is brought to the place of double distress, Egypt, where he rules during this dispensation. He sits in judgment, Midan. That's why that name is given there. And the Bible translators don't grasp this because they haven't studied this. They just simply say this is an error in the Bible. There are no errors in the Bible. When Joseph is brought to Egypt, he's brought to a guy named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. I'm going to tell you this now so you know for the future. Pharaoh means great house. All right, this guy Potiphar is also called the captain of the guard. Now, Potiphar is a name which is hard to pin down. Many people will argue over it, but in Coptic Egyptian, which is the Egyptian language, it means priest of the bull. And interestingly, the bull pictures the high priest of Israel, and so ultimately the work of Jesus. Once again, it appears that even the name in this last verse of this last chapter is pointing, or this last verse of this chapter is pointing to the ongoing ministry of Jesus as our high priest, the priest of the bull. And the reason why I say that is because Potiphar is mentioned by name, but we're going to get in a few more sermons to a couple of guys that are thrown into jail with Joseph. And they are as important, if not more important, to Pharaoh than Potiphar is. And yet their name isn't given. It just simply tells what their job is. They're the baker and the cupbearer. Anytime that you see a name, it is relevant to the story. When it isn't, then they don't give the name. That's just the way that God is working. He's giving us these names to think these things through. There's only one reason why Potiphar's name is given, and that's because of what he pictures. Jesus is our high priest. It's a duty that he performs before, uh, before God on our behalf. Joseph is brought down here to show us where Jesus went to minister as well. Now, if you don't understand this, read the book of Hebrews, and it explains Jesus as our high priest, mediating between God and man for us. Finally, the term used to designate Potiphar as the captain of the guard is literally the captain of the slaughterers, or the chief executioner, all right? He would be the commanding officer who executed capital sentences. And why this is important is going to come about in how he later treats Joseph over an incident that occurs in his own house. Now, this is the end of the chapter here, and I'd like to remind you that God is never mentioned in this entire chapter, not once in all 36 verses. Like chapter 34, which dealt with the sins of the sons of Israel, this one too deals with their sins. It shows that when they lived without God, because in both 34 and this chapter, God is never mentioned, when they live without God, they fail. And the same is true with the nation of Israel. When they are obedient to their Lord, they will receive blessing and they'll receive honor. And when they disobey, they will suffer loss. But through their obedience or disobedience, God has remained faithful to them. He's kept them, he's tended to them, and he's prepared them each step of the way in this marvelous plan of redemption. And Israel, whether you realize it or not, is kind of a picture of each one of us. When we include God in our lives, everything goes better than when we put him on a shelf. And that goes right back to what I was saying to you earlier. If we take this Bible and we put it on a shelf until next Sunday morning, we are not doing ourselves any good. God isn't mentioned in 34. He's not mentioned in 37. And the people suffer because of it. But when we put God into our life each morning, each evening, and maybe throughout the day, just pick up the Bible, keep a copy of the Gospel of John in your pocket and pull it out when you have 10 minutes, you are reinserting God into your life actively, and God is going to favor that. I absolutely assure you of this. There is nothing, nothing more precious than having this relationship with God. 
and it comes about passively, not actively. We have to allow God into us, all right? That's the way when it says be filled with the Holy Spirit, that is not an act of action. You can't sit in church and say, come Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way. You have to open yourself up and the Holy Spirit will fill you. And here's something, I've said this before, but I want you to, so you understand what I'm saying. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, you have all of the Spirit that you will ever get at that moment. You can never get more of the Spirit of God in your life, but the Spirit of God can get more of you. That's what I mean when I say it's passive. When you get married to a woman, you can never get more married to that woman, but that woman can get more of you. It's a passive action. And that is what we need to remember. How does it happen? It happens by talking to the Lord throughout the day. It happens by reading your Bible. It happens through prayer. And it happens through fellowshipping with other people. It does not happen by going to church and listening to nice music. That is there to uplift us. But that's an emotional response. The Spirit doesn't come because of the music. The Spirit becomes, comes because your heart is now receptive to Him. Because you've opened up that avenue for Him. You will never get more of the Spirit, but He can get more of you. Now, if you've never called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and I'm assuming that you have, but if you haven't, I'd like to tell you how you can have a personal relationship with him today. All right, this will take just a minute. The Bible says, and I've been talking about through the whole sermon, that we sinned. We all have sinned in one way or another. But even if you say, I've never sinned, I've never done anything wrong, guess what? Your first father, Adam, did sin. And when he sinned, he died spiritually at that moment. That's what the Bible teaches. And we all inherited that all the way down through all humanity. We've all inherited his fallen state and we are condemned already according to Jesus, John 3, 18. There's nothing we need to do to be condemned. It's already happened. People say, well, it's not fair. What about the guy over in Africa in 800 uh, AD that never received the gospel? It doesn't matter. He's already condemned. We are all in that boat. What they need is Jesus. That's why people give their lives away like the, the people that we have on that, uh, that back shelf back there. I got a picture of a couple of uh, missionaries that uh, I keep in prayer. Is because they understand that if they don't go get that message out, those people have no hope. It's the message of Jesus that restores us to God. And that's why it's so important. We are fallen. We've received death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what you need to know. Jesus is Lord. He came out of the grave. I want him to forgive me of my sins and so my sins will be covered by his blood. And that he came out of the grave, that's the proof that he was sinless and he can do what he said he will do for you. So please, if you've never just simply by faith said, I want Jesus to forgive me, then you can put away all of the other idols in your life and all of the other things which will take your eyes off of him and you can be restored to God the Father once forever. That's all it takes it's just a simple acknowledgement that I cannot do it myself and I want Jesus to do it for me. Please make that choice today. Please do it. All right. Um, closing verse today comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Great words here. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And that's exactly what this passage has been showing us. There's no God but God, and he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Next week is uh, Genesis 38, verses 1 through 23. It's a little more than half of uh, that particular chapter. 23 verses, so uh, we're going to have to go quickly with it. It's called Judah and Tamar, the transfer of the pledge. That's her 95th Genesis sermon, and I honestly mean this when I say please read those verses and ask yourself, why is this story? Read the whole chapter. Don't just read those 23 verses. Read the whole chapter and say, why is this story where it is? Here we're talking about Joseph. We've been going through the life of Joseph, 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 and all of a sudden it stops, and it goes into a story about Judah and one of his uh, sons, his one of his son's wives that he ends up sleeping with, and they have a child. Why is that there? What is that story placed there for? Because God has a reason why He put it between another series of Joseph, which is coming later. It's amazing how God's mind is revealed in the pages of the Bible. So read that, please read that chapter and think, why? Oh, it's great stuff. Now I'm going to give you a poem today. It's called The Pit of Despair. But before I do that, I want to tell you something. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things both for you and through you. All right? This is the pit of despair. So it came to pass in a plot so thick when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic on him, the one of many colors. Then they took him and cast him into a pit and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal, thinking what they had done was no big deal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there were Ishmaelites in a company, coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh abundantly. They were on their way, we are told, to carry them down to Egypt, where they would be sold. So Judah to his brothers said, What profit is there if we kill our brother, and conceal his blood when he is dead, when we kill him, the son of our father? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites." and let her not, our hand not be upon him. For he is our brother and our flesh. Isn't that right? Let us not with malice do our brother in. And his brothers listened. In their minds the thoughts of silver glistened. Then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up from there and lifted him out of the pit so dry and sold him to the Ishmaelites without a care. For 20 shekels of silver he was sold and they took Joseph to Egypt, just 17 years old. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not there in it. Then he tore his clothes in dread as a sign of his overwhelming woe. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic in their hands, and then of the goats they killed a kid, and dipped the tunic in the blood as a part of their plans. This is the dastardly thing that they did. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is our brother's? Is it your son's tunic or not? We think he is dead. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic, not that of another. A wild beast has devoured him. Now he is dead. Certainly torn to pieces is Joseph, your brother. Then Jacob tore his clothes in grief and put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his sons many days with no relief. The memory of what happened couldn't be erased. And all his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused their tries to be comforted. And he said in his woes, nothing will stop the tears in my eyes. For I shall go down into Sheol. In mourning will I go to my son. Thus his father wept for him in his soul. This is the result of what they had done. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. 
He was the captain of the guard, those who carried the bow and the arrow. The life of Joseph has taken a sad turn, and he seems doomed to misery and woe. But from this story, soon we will learn that God had a great plan, one he did foreknow. Like all things, we should trust that God is in control, and so to him our cares and troubles we should roll. His love is greater by far for each of us than we could ever fully recognize, and it is demonstrated beautifully in the giving of Jesus, the most glorious gift from our Creator so wise. And so in gratitude to our glorious Lord above, may we return to him our undying, undivided love. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty, the beauty which is shown in this story, this really sad story of how brothers treated their own brother and threw him into a pit and then sold him off as a slave, rejecting him. But all of it points exactly to what happened to your own son. It's, it's beyond my imagination that he would voluntarily go through what he would go through knowing the outcome, but he did. He did it for people like me, people like those in the congregation here. We had no hope, no hope in the world, and yet he did it. He's brought us to new life. He's brought us to a high place where we can look out and see the broad spaces of heaven just right out of our touch at this point. And we long for the day when we're brought into that glorious place to be with you. Thank you for that. Thank you for the freedom which is found in Christ and the forgiveness of sins through his shed blood. Thank you for these things and may you be glorified and praised on the lips of each person here. Every single day, every moment, may they live lives holy and and glorifying of you. I pray this, that you will be exalted. Oh God, you're great. We thank you, we praise you, we glorify you. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, amen.